0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's dot com. Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In this interview, philosopher Santiago Zabala details why the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency itself and stresses the need to take warnings of emergencies far more seriously. Santiago Zabala is a philosopher and ICREA research philosopher at the Pompeo Fabra University, where he currently teaches contemporary and political philosophy. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Now it's time to welcome Santiago Zabala on Philosophy for Our Times. What is your philosophy on emergencies?
0: I think we find ourselves now uh, in a condition uh, where not the only, but the greatest, in other words, the biggest emergency, uh, is the absence of emergency. In other words, those emergencies that we do not take seriously into, we do not not tackle, we do not confront. Uh, For example, let's say right now, let's say the the pandemic we're living now. Uh, The pandemic is an emergency now, there's no doubt about it. But we were warned in the past decades by Mike Davis, by uh, so many scientists, by the World Health Organization, that a pandemic could could arrive, could take place. and not not much has been done against that. Uh, another example, it's an, even a better example, I think, uh, is climate change. Uh, let's say air pollution. That's an absent emergency. In other words, it's the greatest emergency because we are not confronting it. Uh, Seven million people die every year of um, problems related to to the lung due to the pollution there is, and we have not confronted that. So. Um, the greatest emergency has become the absence of emergency, those emergencies that we do not seriously take into consideration. And when we do take them, um, when we do confront them, often it's a little bit too late. Uh, and so I think it's very important to think, well, what what's the difference between how do we... How can I explain the difference between uh, a state of emergency, something that Kashmir and Agamben explain, and the condition in which we are now? I, I think a good way to, to to point the difference is to think of uh, the difference between George Bush presidency and Donald Trump. If we remember, Donald uh, George Bush, you know, he actually put into effect the state of emergency, a state of deception. And, uh, and Agamben explained how he was using that in extra-legal ways in order to to change the laws and So that would be what Bush did. But 20 years later, actually a little bit, little bit more than that, we find ourselves with a different president for whom, he said what characterized him is, is the absence of emergency. Uh, Trump is known, and he's not the only one, unfortunately, for not taking emergencies into consideration. For example, uh, even, even the coronavirus, he downplayed that for a very long time. Uh, and before that, he did not recognize any uh, climate change. So he really incarnates, he really takes inside this this whole idea of an absence of emergency.
1: Who is responsible for the absence of emergencies?
0: Since 9-11, basically since the beginning of the century, we have experienced an intensification of measures of control. So basically, nothing really changed after 9-11. Nothing really changed also after the 2008-2009 financial crisis. And I'm a little bit afraid that uh, I hope it will change, but I m- things might not change too much either after this emergency we're living now. I think this uh, these emergencies, all these emergencies have in other words, have intensified even more the role of that finance played, neoliberal finance played, that military control played, uh, and also even from a cultural point of view, uh, there has been a stronger reduction, okay, uh, of, uh, of of the possibilities we have of freedom. now example. Well, let's see how we are now, unfortunately, many of us are are manipulated, maybe a small percent of us, but a lot of us are manipulated through social media when we go to elections or when we try to find good information or when we try to... uh... So I have a feeling that now there is an intensification, the fact that Google has so much power. Well, this is a problem as far as our freedom is concerned. Uh, This is what I try to... To explain uh, in my in my new book, uh, which is called "Being at Large." Well, is it possible to be at large today? I think that you know, in the '60s and '70s, some of her parents they, they they could actually go through Europe at large. Nobody will really know where you were. You might be on a train somewhere. Now it's very difficult to be at large. It's uh, it's very difficult to escape in some way. Uh, although one might feel free, right? Uh, but we are free within certain. Uh, specific and very frame, what I like to call a global frame order, and and there has been a reaction to that both uh, philosophically, a very conservative reaction to that, and also there has been a very progressive reaction to that, which uh, I think this is this is very clear in. Um, What we can see in both new realism philosophy, the so-called OOO ontology, and also all the people who have been trying to discredit any sort of postmodern views uh, that instead sustain our concern of this problem.
1: How helpful is freedom in tackling emergencies?
0: Well, I think the first thing we have to do is probably to recognise that there is a problem with freedom. I think that's the first point, because otherwise it seems that uh, oh, just the way we we react. Well, no, there's actually a problem with freedom. Uh, there's a problem of the freedoms we have and the limits we can we, we can surpass. Uh, how do we do this? Well, I think that uh, the idea of I, uh, what I try to explain in my research is that well, we have to find ways not to rescue us from emergencies, but rather to rescue us into emergencies. In other words, uh, there is a sort of connotation of salvation here that perhaps. This is particularly clear in, in art. Art, I think that when you see environmentalist artists, for example, but, you know, they they might show you glaciers or some environmental concern. Well, they're really they're really trying to to trust to push us into these emergencies. I think that's one way of being free to to recall, for example, that philosophically, I think it's important today to to remind everyone that postmodernism is was not a, it's not a was not a movement. To, to create chaos, I think Stanley Fish. He explained very clearly uh, in several of his papers how postmodernism did not win chaos. Postmodernism warned us of the problem of not having any chaos at all. In other words, of having one single truth or to continue to use rationality as a sort of uh, universal paradigm to which we can impose our values upon others. So the idea of of being, in some way, resistant to, to this rationality, I think it's very important because, unfortunately, there, there's a whole movement called the uh, intellectual dark web, uh, people like Peterson and Sam Harris and, and others, that, well, there is a return to order there. Uh, what in, uh, they used to call in France after the First World War, they were a lot. The, same, the sort of idea that we have to return to order because of everything postmodernism did. The problem is that this return to order it's really this this lack of emergency. In other words, making sure that um, well, the refugee crisis is not considered a terrible emergency as it is, or even that uh, even the climate change is not so important as it is. So the idea here is to how do we how do we oppose um, this return to order, this global frame return to order? Well, I think that on the one hand we have to try to recall all what of modern philosophers, from Lyotard, from Baumann, uh, from Stanley Fish, and so many others, uh, recall that well, the idea here is to make sure that philosophy philosophy is a very good, it can be a very good servant of politics, but it's a very bad master of politics. Uh, and this is a distinction that I did not do, but which Roy did. And I think. The idea also of returning to authors like Richard Rorty, who, by the way, in 1997 uh, predicted the rise of Trump. The uh, Democratic Party continued to behave the way it did and the way it does now. So I think we still have a lot to learn uh, from there. And the fact that we return in some way to to this modernity uh, where that in some way justified also colonialism, I think it's an alarming feature.
1: Why is it important to be aware of and respond to these emergencies?
0: Again, I think that the greatest emergencies we have are the ones we do not confront. So if those are, for example, Trump represents, it's the paradigmatic example here, he represents or also Bolsonaro, they said that the coronavirus was not an emergency for a very long time. Uh, actually, I think they're they even probably now uh, downplaying it as as I speak. I hope not, but uh, and I think that that's the biggest emergency we have. Those that still today, you know, do not consider these greatest emergencies we have. Um, so that's the real the first problem we have. Uh, why? Well, because um, let's let's think of this way. What are warnings? Warnings are really signs from the future. They're basically indications we have. That you know you can you can accept them or not, but there are signs that in some way are not there to predict the future, but they warn us. In other words, they work or they function as a sort of pressure in in such a way that emergencies do not actually take place. And I have a feeling that warnings are not taken very seriously. I mean, uh, the pandemic has they warn us for a very long time about the pandemic, and for a very long time it has not taken seriously was not taken seriously. Uh, And there's a problem here of how. How come we don't listen to warning? This is the question, I think. Well, I think one of the reasons we do not listen to warning is because of this frame order that I mentioned before, and also because, well, given social media uh, tremendous power and, and in the Internet in general, uh, and therefore the, the lack of uh, authority now established newspapers, established experts, established universities. In, in other words, those traditional vectors of authority we always founded our beliefs on which, of course, were not ultimate truths, but they had some sort of authority. In consequent, you know, I think the New York Times has more authority than an anonymous blogger somewhere on the web. So um, the problem here is that they lost that authority. And and today, you have to actually make an effort in order to to find the truth. Also because, and this is something, something else, I think it's very important, is, you know, uh, Bruno Latour, his uh, last uh, last book translated into English, uh, Down to Earth, he explains that facts, truths, uh, do not—they don't work on their own. Uh, a scientist can come and explain to us right now the process through which ice is melting, but that's not enough uh, for us to make to do something about it. In order to, for as a collective society to understand it, we need many other factors of authority. For example, public debate or uh, other scientists who also claim this, Other politicians who also agree upon it. So facts alone don't work. Uh, this is why I think that what you, what you said before, why do we need to be pushed into this emergency well? Because unfortunately, truth alone does not work. Uh, this is why I think it's a good example here is um, how come Greta Thunberg, which I admire, like everybody I think does, how come her message works better than so many scientists? Well, her message works better than so many scientists because her message has more—it's more intense than the message that perhaps a scientist managed to get through. Well, there is an intensity there of truth, okay, that we need in order to uh, in order to react to this absence of a message.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.